Well, good morning. If, uh, if you're visiting for the first time today, as, as uh, <clears throat> Pastor Tim mentioned, uh, this is not something that I'm up here doing most of the time, because most of the time he's up here doing that. But I'm glad to fill in and just share my heart. And, and uh, boy, this morning, you know, you see the, the little ones up here lined up, just praying their hearts out to their dads. You know, this is definitely a step way down from that. So, I mean, that we can just end right there, I think, and go home. So that's pretty cool. Um, I am just so blessed in that that I have uh, four great kids now that are grown and just love the Lord and are serving in their churches and, and are, are married um, to wonderful people that, that, that love and know the Lord. And I am just super, super blessed. My oldest daughter, Kendra, uh, she came up on Friday, and she had to leave early this morning. Uh, because she's involved in ministry in her church down in L.A. And so she got up early and, and we had breakfast. And, and uh, she just has a great heart for prayer. And uh, every chance she gets, she just pours out her heart and she just wants to gather people up and don't leave until I pray for you. And so she did that this morning and, and my son John was there and, and we kind of gathered there in the kitchen. She just said, Dad, I want to pray for you and I want to pray for the morning and I want to pray for the people of IBC, and it just went on and on and on. It was this really cool thing, and I was just so blessed by the whole deal. And it was right around 8 o'clock, and right in the middle of her prayer is when, boom, that earthquake hit this morning. So um, I, I, I'm still waiting for the interpretation of what that earthquake means. And so depending, that could go either way if God is trying to tell me something. So anyway, we'll just see. Uh, hopefully that uh, is fine. But anyway, we had a good little laugh about that, and uh in a fun little um, pause. But uh, anyway, um, you know, we're just so blessed uh, with the ministry of, of Pastor Tim and, and uh, just all he does for, uh, for IBC. And, you know, the last really couple of years, uh, as he's been preaching through things like Galatians and 1 John and his series a while back on uh, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and then the last four weeks on It's All About Jesus, and uh, that has really just uh, begun a journey for me about what that means to, to live out the gospel. So I'm really going to be building on a lot of the foundation that, that he's been laying for the last couple of years. And, and I just can't emphasize that uh, really enough. But what I want to speak about this morning is how the gospel should be operating in our lives. And so if you have your Bible... Uh, why don't you turn to the book of Galatians? And once again, uh, Tim spoke a while back just through the entire book of Galatians. So I'm not going to go into a lot of uh, background and detail uh, because he really did cover that, mostly just as a way of reviewing. But it's Galatians chapter 2, beginning with verse uh, 11. And uh, if anybody would like a Bible, maybe somehow you got out this morning and we do have Bibles to pass out, so... Looks like everybody's good. You could raise your hand and we put one right in your hand. Um, anyway, we're, we're Galatians chapter 2. It's beginning with verse uh, 11. And I'm going to be going through uh, verse 16. It says, But when Cephas, and, and Cephas we know to be Peter, of course, but when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, 
so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified and as I said, Pastor Tim carefully took us uh, through Galatians quite some time ago, so I will only briefly mention what is going on here by way of review. Paul is very deliberate in his public confrontation of Peter. Why? Because in verse 12, there is a group called the Circumcision Party. This was a group of Jews that most definitely believed that Jesus was the Messiah. That is a great start, a great foundation. But what they had added to it was that in order to be saved, you needed to follow the Jewish ceremonial laws. It was not salvation alone through faith alone in Christ alone. It was Jesus plus the law equals salvation. And to make matters worse, there were some other things going on with Peter really being a hypocrite in this entire situation. And at one time he was eating with the Gentile believers and had now turned his back on them and had realigned himself with the circumcision group because he was afraid of what they might think or what they might do. In addition, he is now leading others down the same path. Peter, Peter, what a guy. You know, we point our finger at him, but then it's like looking in the mirror and I just see myself in Peter the minute I do that. All this aside, uh, a theologian by the name of Gresham Makem says, the central point concerning these teachers was the order of steps to salvation. So what was this order? Well, the teachers said, number one, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, keep the law as best you can. And then number three, you will be saved. Paul comes in and he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. At that moment, you are saved and then proceed to keep the law. They both believed in Jesus. They both believed that following God's command was an essential part of living a life for Jesus. The circumcision group, however, said, I obey. Therefore, I am accepted by God. But Paul said, I am accepted by God, therefore I obey. These are two radically different orders. Organized religion down through the ages has always been, if God is going to accept me, I must live a good life. We hear it all the time. We hear things like, I've been talking to that guy upstairs. I know I've done a lot of bad things, but I'm really working on it, and I'm hoping He'll forgive me and accept me. Verse 14 said, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the 
gospel. The gospel. What is it? The gospel is good news. It is not good advice. The gospel is not primarily a way of life. It is not something we do, but something that has been done for us and something we must respond to. And what do you do with good news? You announce it. You proclaim it. Number two, what is that news? The gospel is good news announcing that we have been rescued or saved. What have we been rescued or saved from? It's not something we like to talk about much. God's wrath. Romans 1, 18 through 23, if you want to turn with me there a few books back, a few letters back. Romans chapter 1. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they came futile in their thinking." And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And their foolish hearts were darkened. I'm sorry, skip back. And exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. God's wrath, our broken relationship with him, our broken vertical relationship affects all of our earthly horizontal relationships. Continuing with verse 24, it says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetedness, malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. All problems on earth stem from a broken relationship with God and attempting to fix our horizontal relationships without first restoring the vertical one is simply a band-aid. Number three, the gospel is news about what has been done by Jesus Christ to put right our relationship with God. 
period. 1 John 3.14 says, We have passed from death to life. You are either in Christ or you are not. You, are, you either have eternal life or you do not. Salvation is not a process. It is what has been done by Jesus to bring restoration. It is finished. So when someone says, I'm not a Christian because I'm not yet good enough, they simply don't understand the gospel. It's not about joining something. It's about receiving something. Receiving through faith what Christ has done. Knowing this, it is important to understand that there are two errors that corrupt the gospel. Two errors that corrupt the gospel. Two things that we as believers that can be guilty of in not living out the gospel. The first one is called moralism or legalism or some simply call it religion. Legalism says I'm saved by Jesus so I have to live a holy good life in order to maintain my salvation. Or the reverse of that, I have to live a holy good life in order to, for Jesus to save me. The other area that corrupts the gospel is called relativism, or the big word antinomianism. You don't have to remember that, by the way. It won't be on the test. Or irreligion. Relativism or irreligion. It says, just Jesus took the punishment I deserve. He saved me once and for all, and so now I can live any way I want. The other extreme. Romans 6, uh, 1 and 2 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So question, which one do you fit into? Which one are you guilty of? To a certain degree, I think we're all guilty of both of them at certain times. There are times when we get caught up in our sin and simply say, God will forgive me when I, and just fill in the blank, whatever sin. My own personal feeling, however, especially here in our circles, and I'm including myself in this group, is that many of us probably struggle with legalism. And many probably don't even really recognize it's happening. So how does this happen? We hear the gospel message. We receive it. We believe it. We place our hope in it. At one point, we were all new believers. Now we are ready to move on. Move on to what? The meat, of course. I've got some areas that I really want to clean up. What does the Bible say about my lack of patience? My pride, my anger, my gossip, my drug abuse, my sin. What does the Bible say about it? It says a lot. Guaranteed it has something to say about it, and it's important. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, of course. But we must continually remind ourselves that it is not about a list that we are checking off. The list so quickly becomes an area of pride as we measure ourselves against others. Let me say that again. 
the list so quickly becomes an area of pride as we measure ourselves against other people. We are all broken. We are all sinners. It's not about a list. Let's get back to Galatians. Here's how legalism plays out in getting the order wrong like the circumcision group did. If your order is to obey in order to be accepted, then your obedience is these two things. If your order is obey in order to be accepted, then your obedience is these two things. Number one, your obedience will tend to be anxious. Why anxious? Because you can never be sure. You can never be sure that you are being good enough. There will always be some point where you feel that you simply are not quite measuring up. Number two, it will tend to be selfish. You will tend to be more selfish because the good that you are working towards is because you want something from God. You want to earn his acceptance. If I conquer this area of sin, if I reach out to the poor, if I share my faith today with someone, then God will accept me or at least he's going to bless me. It becomes a me focus instead of a God focus. Remember, it's about what God has done for us through Jesus to bring glory to himself for the sake of his name and not mine. In addition to being anxious and selfish, you tend to carry this huge burden. You must continually work to prove yourself to God, even though you may not want to. You become more touchy or defensive. If anybody criticizes you, you get upset because it's important to think of yourself as a good person. And now someone has robbed you of that. Or you become to believe that if you don't think of yourself as a good person, God is not going to bless you, thereby robbing you of joy. Look at it this way. Two believers sitting side by side, both doing the right thing. They're both reading their Bible. They're both praying. They're both in life groups. They're both fellowshipping. Both even believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But both doing it for radically different reasons, with radically different motives, with radically different results. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. But what if you believe that I am saved, therefore I obey? What if you truly believe that Jesus, that in Jesus Christ, I already have everything? I have it all. I'm a child of the King. I have the greatest love relationship I could ever possibly imagine. I have the greatest intimacy I could ever hope for. I have a guaranteed future and hope. I have it all. Then I obey out of love. Then I obey out of joy. Then my heart's desire becomes, what can I do to delight him? What can I do to be more like him? Out of fullness of heart rather than emptiness of heart. Serving God as opposed to serving self. 
The moment you believe, two things happen. Number one, your rebellion against God is placed on Jesus. And number two, his righteousness is placed on you. Jesus is treated as if everything you did, he had done. And at the same moment, you are treated as if everything he did, you had done. All his medals are pinned right on your chest. And so the question is, what order are you living in? I believe and I develop a record of righteousness trying to live a good life and then I'm saved. Or I believe and therefore I get a record of righteousness that is given to me. Then I obey. That's the heart of the gospel. Now let's really give this some application. How do we live this day, day in and day out? But before we do this, I want to point out the wrong way that many of us, including me for sure, tend to look at the gospel message when we hear it, like right now. We think, yeah, the gospel message, awesome. I really hope there are some non-believers here today that heard this. That's who it's really for. Or we think, yeah, the gospel message, the new believers that are here today really need to hear this. It was for them for sure. But the gospel message for me, I'm a maturing, growing believer. I get it. It's time to move on. There are some things that I really want to work on in my life. Look back at what Paul says to Peter in Galatians 2.14. He says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is the apostle Peter we're talking about. He's not a baby newborn believer. He's been around. But Paul says you are out of step with the gospel. The gospel is not baby steps you learn and then move on to something else. Paul is saying, Peter, your attitude toward people of other races is out of line with the gospel. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus died for all. The playing field is equal. Act like it. Act out your life in accordance with the gospel. Let me ask you then, is every area of your life in line with the gospel? Is your attitude toward work in line with the gospel? Is the way that you're spending your money in line with the gospel? Are your family relationships in line with the gospel? Is your sexuality in line with the gospel? Is your attitude toward the poor in line with the gospel? How do you think about your past? Is it in line? Here's a tough one. Is the way you think about those on the other side of the political spectrum from you in line with the gospel? 
The implication is, is every single area of your life in line with the gospel? Because the gospel addresses our greatest need, it brings transformation to every area of our life. Because the gospel addresses our greatest need, it brings transformation to every single area of our life. You see, the gospel is not simply the ABCs of Jesus. It is not the baby steps. It is the A to Z of life in Jesus. It is infinitely broad and infinitely deep. You cannot exhaust it. Peter knew who Jesus was. He knew the gospel message. What the message had not done was to penetrate to the depths of his heart. Think back to what I said earlier about the two enemies of the gospel. Legalism, which says I have to obey in order to be accepted by God. Or relativism, which says I am completely accepted and loved by God, therefore I do whatever I want. How does the gospel, for example, change the discouragement that you have in your life? The places in your life where you will inevitably fail that bring discouragement and possibly depression. I'm discouraged because I did this thing or I didn't do that thing. And I don't mean to make this sound like it's some kind of a formula or simple fix. As people, we are very complex. We have deep-seated sin problems, and the process of growing and maturing in Christ is a process that will continue until the day we meet Jesus face to face. But allow me to give you some ideas that will hopefully cause you to think a little differently, that will help your journey and help keep you focused on the truth of God's word. There aren't any easy fixes. So, like I mentioned before, discouragement. When a person is discouraged or depressed, the legalist would say, you're breaking the rules, stop it. The relevist would say, you just need to love and accept the way you are. The gospel, on the other hand, will lead us to examine ourselves and say, something in my life has become more important than God. Jesus is no longer my Savior. Something else is. The gospel then leads us to deep repentance and transformation because of what Christ has done for us and restoring him to his proper place on the throne. Another example, relationships and love. So often our self-image and self-worth are tied up in our relationships with other people. When we gain love from others, we consider ourselves worthy, which is simply to say that we are seeking to earn our salvation through the worth that we seek in others. This is how the legalist or the moralist finds acceptance from God. The relativist, on the other hand, will continue in a relationship as long as there's just simply some kind of a benefit. It becomes a very self-centered, self-focused kind of a thing. The gospel, on the other hand, leads us to do neither. We selflessly sacrifice and commit but not out of a need to convince ourselves or others that we are acceptable. 
We can love a person enough to confront, yet stay with the person even when it does not benefit us. Another example, race, culture, or perhaps even politics. Once again, this kind of thing is very complicated, and I'm not going to solve it in just a few sentences, but hopefully just begin a journey for you. In general, the moralist, or you could even use the word conservative, will tend to evaluate the culture, etc., on the basis of some kind of set truth. The moralist will idolize their culture or their particular position and feel self-justified in declaring themselves superior to everybody else. The relativist or the liberal approach is to say that it's all good. We can all get along because there is no truth. Once again, I'm speaking in very general terms. But the gospel, on the other hand, leads us to be somewhat critical of all cultures, including our own, since truth is objective and real as we understand it in Scripture. It also leads us to see that we are morally superior to no one, since we are all saved by grace alone. Romans 3.23 says, There is no one righteous, not even one. In Christianity, God's love is extended to everyone, but it is absolutely bold in saying that there is salvation in no other name except the name of Jesus. Acts 4.12 The gospel both loves and embraces the culture and challenges it with the truth. Another example, example, work and our jobs. This is an enormous area of our lives simply because we spend so much of our time there. It is the place where we often get much of it, if not all of our self-image and self-worth. The place where we provide for our families, the place where we get the accolades of a job well done, the place where we can serve, show excellence to others, love others, become involved in the lives of others, and share the gospel with others. Many great things. But it is also the place that can quickly become our biggest idol, the thing we worship above all else. The moralist will say hard work. We're commanded by God to work hard. God will reward you with your hard work. God will accept you when you work hard. The relevist will say, it really doesn't matter how hard you work. Just work enough to get by. Go with the flow. It's okay. The gospel says, once again, we sacrificially commit to use our gifts and strengths in the workplace. But it is all to God's glory, not as a way to prove our worth. God created work and the work as he formed the earth simply for the sheer joy of it, we too are to work out of our joy for what Christ has done. In conclusion, I, uh, I just want to kind of connect things in just a little different way. We can't make any sense out of our world except without attaching it to some kind of a story. On September 11, 2001, the World Trade Center was brought down by an attack on U.S. soil. 
Every time someone mentioned the event, they placed it in the context of a story or a narrative. Some people would say that these attacks were the direct result of America's abuse of power in the world. This would never have happened if we had not been guilty of that abuse. Others would say there are evil, wicked people in the world who hate us because we are a good and free country. Depending on which story you believed, you would align yourself with either one or the other, and it would be based on how you answer these three questions. Number one, how are things in the world supposed to be? Number two, what is the main problem with things as they are right now? And number three, what is the solution and how can I accomplish it or realize it in my own life? How are things in the world supposed to be? What is the main problem with the things that the way they are now? And what is the solution to that problem? All worldviews and all religions ask these three questions. And everyone makes sense of their world by answering these three questions and attaching it to the story of their own life. The storyline story found in the Bible answers these three questions in this way. Number one, God made the entire world and everything in it was good. There are no intrinsically evil parts of the world. Now that statement is uniquely and radically different than all other worldviews. All other worldviews identify something in creation as being intrinsically evil. Plato, for example, said that it's the body and its passions that are evil. Marx said that it was economic factors that were evil, and so on and so forth. So number one, God made the entire world and everything in it was good. Number two, the entire world is fallen. There is no part of the world that is affected more or less than any other part. It's all in a fallen state. And number three, the whole world is going to be redeemed. We as believers in Christ are saved by grace through faith in his atoning death. And one day Jesus will return to restore all of creation. And so the question is, has God's story for all of creation become your story? And if so, how are you living out the good news of the gospel story right now and when you walk out those doors? There is hope for us here and now for salvation. There is hope here and now for the world. That hope is found only in Jesus Christ. Live every part of your life in view of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me? Almost glorious, precious, holy, high God. It is for the sake of your name that we bow down before you. It is for the sake of your name that we live in obedience to you. It is for the sake of your name that we come and worship and sing your praises. It is for the sake of your name that we live. 
And it is the gospel message of Jesus Christ that we come under and receive your forgiveness and your mercy and your grace. Oh, most precious holy God, thank you for reaching down and grabbing a hold of us and giving us life and hope and redemption in you. We do not deserve an ounce of it, and yet you just pour it out on us, and we receive your glory and your joy. We thank you as a people, and my prayer for each one of us is that we would live the gospel message every day and take it and share it with the lost and dying world. And we thank you in your precious, precious holy name.